that the magicians finally admitted, we ain't able to do this. This is the finger of God. They have limits. They can't do everything that God is able to do. Aren't you glad for that? Yeah, Satan is able to reproduce a lot of the miraculous things that God has allowed through his servants to do to prove himself faithful to his word. And yet, the enemy still has the ability to do some of that as well. And it will be manifest in the last days in that same way as it was through the Egyptian magicians. There is coming a day when there will be many who will do miracles, even in Christ's name, who are not His people. And they will completely overwhelm and convince. But they're not His. They're the enemies. Jesus himself said, many will come and do miracles in my name. In fact, he told the parable. And in that parable, he said, they will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? And he will say, get behind me, I never knew you. That tells me that miracles aren't in and of themselves proof that God exists. But what Simon the sorcerer saw was something far more than he was able to reproduce. And he realized this is a finger of God, just like the Egyptian magicians did. And when he saw these things, he was so completely overwhelmed by these things. And he became a believer, it tells us. He also believed, and when he had been baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done because they were beyond his ability to do any of those things. So Philip had a pretty convincing miracle show that the miracle worker Simon could not produce. So was he a believer? It says he believed. He got baptized. The question is, was it real? My answer to that is, I don't know. Nobody does. But look what happens next. It gives us a clue. It tells us in verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had, fallen, he had not fallen upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. All right. We've got some insight here as to his character. We've got some insight as to the veracity of his conversion experience, if you will. Not completely. But it gives us a hint. You see, Simon saw something that he couldn't reproduce. And when he saw it, he wanted to be able to have that trick in his trick bag, if you will. He wanted to be able to reproduce what Peter and John were doing, whatever it was that caused him to say, there's power in that. I want to buy that power. You see what the error of his way is in this? He wasn't concerned at all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
in asking for that power to do what they were doing. He was willing to pay for that power to do it so that he would be recognized by the Samaritans and anybody else he comes into contact with as a great man of God. You see, he had a wrong motive. Before we go into Peter's response to that, I'd like to back up just a little bit and talk about this event that took place. Because it's really unique in the Scripture. Again, Philip had been baptizing many believers, but it tells us that they were believers and they were baptized, but they hadn't yet been filled with the Spirit. So that leads some to say, well, they weren't yet born again. It doesn't lead me to say that. It leads others to say that. I believe that they were indeed saved and born again because when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. They had confessed belief in Him. And they were, I believe, saved. And when anyone gets saved, the Word of God tells us very clearly that the Spirit of God comes into our lives, dwells within us. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. We have received the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Remember, we've talked about that more than one time. You all should know that there are three propositions that are used in this Word of God regarding the Spirit of God. The preposition in, He will be in you. The preposition for with, He will be with you. And the preposition upon, he will come upon you. They are three separate and distinct manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they received the Holy Spirit on that day. Peter was already a believer. He was already a man of God who had been filled by the Spirit of God based upon what John records in his gospel, that after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus had appeared to them, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came into them at that moment they were believers. The coming upon the believer on the day of Pentecost was a different and distinct event that took place in their lives. It was for the purpose of empowering them, to give them a way to reach out into the world under the power of the Holy Spirit to do the service of God that God called them to do. That's what the power of God is all about as the Holy Spirit comes down upon an individual. <coughs> Excuse me. It's here in this passage that apparently the Holy Spirit came upon the believers. They hadn't Receive that empowerment up to this point. It's by the laying on of the apostles' hands that this event took place. What did Simon see? What actually took place at that moment that the Holy Spirit came down? Well, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down upon the believers, they all began speaking in other tongues, dialects. The whole Pentecostal movement is based upon the giving of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of that giving of the Holy Spirit through the speaking in tongues. I'm not fully convinced of all of that. 
we can't tell from this scripture that that's what happened. That they all started speaking in tongues. There are four other places in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit comes upon individuals. And each one of those other four, five, other four places besides this one, it does say specifically that they began to speak in tongues. So a lot of the most, of, if not all, of the Pentecostal churches believe that that actually happened in this event as well, that the Spirit of God came down upon them and that they all spoke in tongues. That's what Simon saw. That's what he wanted to manifest and duplicate in his own miraculous ministry. It's not necessarily so. You can't prove something that has no basis. It has no written proof of that event being the baptism of the Holy Spirit as it's manifested in other places by the speaking in tongues. I am a proponent of being willing to receive any gift that God wants to give, including the gift of speaking in tongues. I'm not opposed to that. I just don't want you to think that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Because there's a lot of Pentecostals who say that, and it's wrong. I encourage people to receive that baptism of power where you are able then to enjoy the wonderful gift that God desires to give to you, whatever that gift may be. And if it happens to be that He desires to give you the gift of speaking in tongues, that's His choice to do. I think it's right for us to seek after these gifts, all of them. Because they're gifts to the church. God didn't give them and then remove them at the end of the first century. That would be very, very mean of a loving God to do so. But I believe one of the best gifts, and Paul tells us to seek the best gift, is a gift of discernment. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Are you asking for discernment? It's a free gift. Are you asking for a gift of miracles? It's a gift. Are you asking for prophecy? It's a gift. Are you asking for tongues or interpretation of tongues? Those are gifts. Are any of the gifts not acceptable to you? Are any of the gifts something you want to kind of stay away from because you're not going to have control over anything that happens if you receive this gift? People of God, He loves to give good gifts unto His children. He calls them all good gifts. Don't be selective and don't reject any of the gifts that He wants to give. But don't tell everybody that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Paul said, I'm glad that I speak in tongues more than you all. He also said, do all speak in tongues? And the answer to that rhetorical question is no. Not in the church anyway. We don't generally have manifestations of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Spirit in our services here today, any day that I can recall. From time to time, there have been prophecies. There have been statements made by people that are obviously from the Holy Spirit. I encourage that. But I also say, everything must be done in its proper order and in the way that the Word of God endorses. 
So we don't really want a misuse of any of the Spirit gifts. But we want the Spirit to move freely. In this portion of Scripture, that's what was happening. Whatever the manifestation was, the Spirit was being made available. And they were receiving by the laying on of hands, and that is another part of the story that we don't need to get into much detail about, but that was the way that they chose to invite the Spirit of God to move in the heart of this believer by the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands doesn't really convey anything but germs, but it was a way for them to connect with the other person in the same way that they would in the offering of sacrifices, connect with the lamb that was going to, be, going to be sacrificed by putting the hand on the head of the lamb as his throat was being cut, identifying their sin with that innocent sacrifice. Back to the story. Simon was impressed. We don't know what it was that he saw, but he saw something. And he said, I want to buy that gift so that I can do that too. What a mistake that was. Verse 20 says, But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. What a shameful idea. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. What a slam. Simon, you have really made a huge mistake in thinking that you can buy God or anything to do with God. His heart was not right. He tells us, repent therefore in verse 22. Repent, Simon. Repent. Now, wasn't Simon a believer? It says he was. It says Simon believed and he was baptized. But Peter's here saying, your heart's not right with God. How do you How do you reconcile that? Well, some people say, well, he was never saved. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to deny it, but I'm not going to say that. I am going to say that for each one of us, instead of looking at somebody else and saying, I don't know if that person is saved or not. Well, there are some things that you can do that you can justify such a thought You look at the fruit in their life over time and you see that the fruit is not godly fruit. And then you might be able to say, I don't think that person's saved. Perhaps not. Or perhaps that person just hasn't gotten into the Word of God and been convicted yet by the Spirit of God about those things that he or she is taking advantage of without realizing it's a sin. That is a possibility. With Simon, I think that also was a possibility and a probability. I don't know. But I do know that Peter said, repent of this, which you are thinking, so that you can be forgiven. We're not told whether Simon repented. And that's where I have to leave it. We don't know. But what takes place is this. Peter has said, Repent therefore of this wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. He would do that if Simon did indeed repent of that terrible thought that he had with regard to the being like he had once been before his salvation, that he lived a life of sorcery. That had to go. 
that had to be left behind. So it is with all of us. Whatever we were doing in our lives prior to Christ that is not of God, it has to go. Don't hang on to it. Don't allow it to continue to fester in your life. Get rid of it. Let it die. Put it on the cross, as Matt was talking about earlier today. Reckon yourself to be dead unto sin. That's why Paul said, by the way, the great Apostle Paul, the leader of the church, I die daily. Read the book of Romans, chapter 7, and recognize that Paul himself is saying, there's a battle going on in my flesh, and I've got to deal with it on a daily basis. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I do, I, I shouldn't be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death, Paul cries out. And then the wonderful thing that he says at the beginning of Romans chapter 8 is this. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. That's the way and only way that we can receive that which we need to live out this life as a believer in Jesus Christ. To receive, after having fully repented of our sin, that forgiveness which we cry out to God for. That's why John tells us, and we've said over and over and over again from this pulpit, Confess your sins to Him. He is faithful to forgive you of your sins and faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness, from all your iniquities, from all of your sin, from all of your transgression. He is able and willing to do so. How many times is He willing to forgive? Well, Peter thought seven times would be enough. Peter was wrong. Jesus told, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven, Peter. In other words, by the time you get to 490, you're going to have lost any desire to hang on to that grudge. It's not worth it. God's forgiveness is infinite. God's forgiveness is certain. God's forgiveness is not limited to a number of times that we transgress. But, We must confess our sins. We must be willing to go to Him and cry out to Him for help to deliver us from the sin and to keep us from doing that which we once were doing that is dishonorable and so much of a terrible thing in His eyes. That's why Peter says, Simon, repent. Forgiveness is available to you. Just repent. Verse 24 gives Simon's response. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. There seems to be a fearfulness in his response, a desire for making it right. We do not know whether he did. So we cannot cast any judgment on him, although church writers have done so. There are records of a man named Simon, presumed to be this Simon, who continued on in his sorcery. Whether or not those records are accurate, we can't tell. It's not biblical. It's not included in the Word of God. 
But there is one thing that stands out in my mind as something of, well, relative importance. There is a term in the church that was assigned. The term is simony. You know what it is? Simony is a selling of a position in the church. It was very common in the 10th, 11th centuries among the Catholic Church where they would sell positions of bishop, cardinal, in one case even pope, to the highest bidder. That's called simony. Named after our man here, Simon the Sorcerer. I don't know, and I don't want to know, What I do want to understand is how I can keep myself from going down that path. The Word of God tells us very plainly that I'm to work out my own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works out His perfect will in me. That's what I want. I hope that's what you want. Don't worry about the person down the street. Don't worry about the person next to you in the pew. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Make sure you're right with God. The relationship that you have with Him is of paramount importance to you. It is to me with regard to my own salvation. I can't control anything that you decide, anything that you do, anything that you choose. But you can. Work it out in fear and trembling. Believe in God that He is able to do what He has promised He will do. Whether or not Simon did, we'll know someday soon. That's the end of the story as we have in this passage of Scripture with regard to the moving of the Holy Spirit in Samaria. Except for the fact that in verse 25 it says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. They're talking about the apostles, Peter and John in particular, and those who were with them. And as they returned, they preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The word is spreading. They're responding to the command of Jesus to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into all the uttermost parts of the world. They're moving in the right direction. It's because of the persecution that was instigated by one particular man whose name is Saul of Tarsus. We'll be introduced more to that man in chapter 9. Philip was having a great ministry in this area known as Samaria. Many things were happening. Many people were coming to faith. But the story doesn't end there. I'd like to go through the remainder of the chapter with you, if I may. I realize the time is late, but it won't be long. Read on with me in verse 26 where it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Luke tells us, by the way, this is desert. A desert region. And my first thought is, why, Lord? It's going so wonderfully well here. 
You want me to leave this and go down to a desert area? What for? What purpose is there in this? Are you sure, Lord? I don't think Philip asked any of those questions. God said go, and Philip was a servant of the Lord, and it tells us that Philip went. He didn't tell Philip where to go specifically, how far into the land of Gaza that he was to travel. He just said go. Kind of like Abraham. Go to the place that I will show you. Oh, okay. Right on. I'm your man. I think that's a good attitude, by the way. If you hear God speak, go and do. Okay, Lord. Don't bother asking what's next. He's not going to tell you until it's time. And that's what how that's how Philip was responding. Okay, Lord. Drops everything, packs up his travel bag, heads south. Verse 27 says, So he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So here's this man, an Ethiopian, perhaps a converted Gentile, or perhaps he may have been a Jew among the Ethiopians. We're not told. But he was a believer, at least in God, and worshipped God in Jerusalem. He went there specifically to worship Jehovah. He's coming back from that worship of God. And he's in his chariot on his way back to the desert area of Gaza, and he's reading Isaiah, the prophet. Verse 29 says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Next step, Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, obviously reading out loud. That's a good way to read the Scripture, by the way. And he said, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And then he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. He saw something in Philip that apparently indicated to him that Philip knows an answer to the question that you have. Go ahead and ask him. Perhaps that was the Lord leading him in that direction. We're not told. But we do know that he invited Philip to enter into his chariot with him and explain to him what it is that this man was reading. And it's very interesting to me that he was reading a particular portion of the book of Isaiah, He was reading from chapter 53. This is the place, it says in verse 32 in the scripture, which he read. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And then the eunuch asked Philip and said, I ask you, Of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Oh, that's a good question. And it needs an answer. And Philip has the answer. Philip is going to be able to explain to him, this is what you have been reading about. I know this from personal experience. I've got the answer to your question. You know, you and I can do the same. There are going to be people who will come to all of us I believe in the days ahead there is things there are things rather that are going on in this world that will bring people to their senses and cause them to wonder what is going on in the world and they know that you've got the answer and when they come to you asking for an answer you've got the ability by the power of the holy spirit to give them that answer as peter himself had said 
be prepared to give an answer for what you believe. When they come and ask, He'll give that answer through you. That's what happened here with Philip. And so the eunuch answered Philip, I ask you, whom does this man speak of? And in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the Scripture that he was reading and preached Jesus to him. Now as he went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders, from me, what hinders me from being baptized? He became a believer in Jesus Christ. In that short period of time, he accepted Christ as his Savior. Now that I've accepted Christ, look, there's water over there. What keeps me from being baptized so that I can finalize that which I have already begun? Baptism doesn't save. But baptism confirms that which you have committed yourself to. He realized that. And he wanted to be baptized. Only Philip and whoever was with the eunuch at the time that was part of his entourage, they were witnesses to this baptism that was now about to take place. Philip said, yeah, let's do it. And so he says, in verse 37, Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I use that as a mark of proof that anyone who wishes to be baptized by me as a pastor, I will want them to say those very words. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And with that statement of belief, then I am confident that going into the waters of baptism is a thing that will stand as a point of reference, a memorial for the rest of your lives. If you've not been baptized, that's why we do that. And I recommend baptism for all. It's not required, but it certainly is a wonderful thing. The Philip Ethiopian encounter is one of the best places to go to to realize how important baptism can be. But it's, again, not to earn salvation. It's to prove salvation. So he commanded the chariot to stop in verse 38. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized them. Notice that it says he went down into the water. That's immersion. Verse 39 says, Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Underline that phrase, caught him away. The Greek word, is root harpazo. It means being snatched up, taken out, caught up. It's the same word that Paul uses when he talks about the rapture of the church. There's coming a day, my friends, when we too will be caught up, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Philip was caught up, snatched away. That implies that one moment Philip was standing next to the eunuch, and coming out of the water, and all of a sudden, Philip was gone. That's pretty impressive. It tells us then, in verse 40, Philip was found at Azotus. That's about halfway to Caesarea, along the Mediterranean coast, very far from Gaza. In passing through, he preached in all the cities to the king, to Caesarea. We're told later on in chapter 22 of the book of Acts that Philip had a ministry in Caesarea. He stayed there. He had three daughters who were prophetesses. We'll read about that as we get further along into the text of the book of Acts, perhaps, unless the Lord comes before we get there. 
I'm kind of hoping that that might be the case, by the way. But if he should tarry, we're going to make an effort to journey through this book of Acts and see so many more wonderful stories that we can look at that strengthens our faith, that encourages us to follow this one that we have chosen to serve. And I pray that every one of you here this morning have been able to say, I serve the living Savior. I serve Jesus Christ. I have chosen to believe in all that He has accomplished for my benefit, for the saving of my soul. I believe that I am a follower of Jesus Christ to the very end because He's given me life. He's made me to be born again. He's given me the power of the Holy Spirit to live for Him in these last days. He has used me and will continue to use me in these last days to represent Him as His ambassadors. I am. And I believe if you are willing to say the same, born again, filled with the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit of God, He dwells in me. He gives me power. When I ask for the Spirit, the Lord answers. And He uses that which I have requested for His glory. Are you there? Are you doing that very thing today? Are you willing to commit yourself in such a way as this? Then walk with great courage, my friends. Walk with the Holy Spirit's power. We ask for more power, more love, more of His Holy Spirit in our lives. It's a gift. Peter said, it's a gift. It's recorded for us over and over again. It's one of the things that we can ask for. Jesus Himself said, ask for the Spirit of God and He will give because He loves to give good gifts unto His children. Ask and you shall receive. Believe that whatever He wants to give to you, He will give if you but simply ask for it. Amen. Don't leave here without a strong desire in your heart to do so today. In Jesus' name.